0: Our sermon today will be taken from John chapter 12, verse 20 to 36. This is the word of God. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. That says the Lord.
1: Thank you, Emily. Morning, church. We will continue in our series through the book of John uh, in this Easter Sunday, and as we've just read, we saw that Jesus is having a conversation with a group of people, with a crowd, and just to remind ourselves of the context of all that's happening here so that we can actually get uh, the full meaning of the passage, one is that this was only days away from the crucifixion. The crucifixion is about to happen, so one, the cross was right before Jesus, and two, also... They are having this conversation days away from the Passover celebration, the Passover feast. That's the feast mentioned in verse 20 for passages today. The Passover feast, just a reminder, is a Jewish celebration that happens once a year where millions of Israelites would come to Jerusalem and celebrate um, and remind themselves of the liberation they've experienced from the Egyptians in Exodus they would do this every year to remind them that we've been delivered from Egypt. And hundreds, hundreds of years, uh, uh, they've, been, they've been doing this. And one more thing about the context of this passage that we saw last week is that during this particular Passover celebration, things were a bit more festive than usual. Why? Because Jesus, who this whole time has been claiming to be the Messiah, the Redeemer, he just raised Lazarus up from the grave, and this guy is now intending the feast. Everyone was a little bit more excited than usual. Why? Because last week we saw that the crowd here thought that Jesus, who claims to be the Messiah, who claims to be the Redeemer, is finally here to do his job and free them. Free them from who? From the Roman military that were occupying them at the time. They were, they were waving palm tree trunks, if you remember, signifying a military coup. Come on, Jesus, save us from the Roman um um uh slavery that that we're in and 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 last week we saw them crying hosanna which means please lord save us as Jesus was walking into Jerusalem so the scene here let's let's put our feet in in that time there are millions of Jews that were celebrating a feast where they're reminded of the victory and deliverance they had from the egyptian slavery who are also sick of the current roman invaders that they have now They wanted Jesus to do his job as a Messiah, as a Redeemer, and to lead, what? A revolt. Give them back their country. Give them back their freedom. This is what they thought redemption meant. This is what they thought the Messiah was supposed to do. Give me back my life, they said. And to all this, Jesus responds in our passage today in the most unexpected way. Almost even disappointing, maybe, to these people to these millions of people, begging Jesus to free them and give their lives back. Jesus said in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Imagine what the crowd must have thought. What? That's not what the Messiah is supposed to say. That's not what the Redeemer is supposed to say. You're supposed to say... Okay, I'll beat the Romans for you. I'll give you your life back. I'll give you your world back. What's all this talk about losing my life and hating my life in this world? That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. That's what redemption is all about. It's a whole new category for them. And here's what Jesus is saying to them and to us today. It's something unbelievably important for us to understand. He's saying, if you want true victory, if you want true gladness, if you want true peace and true joy, don't ask for the world. You're asking for the wrong thing. The world cannot give you that. Freedom from Rome cannot give you that. But this is how we often think, is it not? We don't think like them, that joy will be found in being liberated from Rome. But do we not think that oftentimes true and joy and victory can be found after we gain more money so that we can be liberated from financial instability? Don't we often think that Victory and and, and joy can be gained when we find a love interest that will liberate us from our singleness. Do we not often think that joy and love and victory will be found when we have a successful career and we're finally liberated from professional mediocrity? Is that not the same attitude we often have? We ask Jesus for these things for the world then I'll be truly victorious. Then I'll be truly happy. When I've gained these worldly things, then I'll be liberated from whatever it is that you think bondages you. What Jesus does here as he he, he blows the whistle and reveals to us that's a lie. That's a lie. That's not what your heart actually wants. You might think it's what you want, but it's not. So what is the thing that Jesus claims to be the actual desires of our heart? Well, let's study our passage today. Three things to point out. The true desire of our heart, point number one. Point number two, the sluggish default of our hearts. And finally, a beauty that realigns our hearts. The true desire of our hearts, the sluggish default of our hearts, or the lazy default of our hearts, and the beauty that realigns our heart. Let's jump to the first point. The true desire of our hearts. What is it that our hearts really want? So let's start in verse 20. We see that this feast that's meant to be for Jewish people, there were Greeks there. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, verse 20 says. Greeks were non-Jewish people. So why are there non-Jews there for a Jewish festival? Well, well, back then, there were some Greeks who also wanted to worship Yahweh. They wanted to become Jewish, so to speak, uh, in that they wanted to be part of those who worship Yahweh, God, the Old Testament God. And they, they would join these feasts, although they were so restricted to the outer courts temple, so the Jewish People will get the inner courts, and, and, and the Greeks who wanted to worship Yahweh will be restricted to the outer courts. That's how the temple worked back then. So these Greeks who were in the outer courts said in verse 20 to Philip, who probably thought, they probably thought Jesus was in the inner court. They said to Philip, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew, and then they both went to Jesus in verse 22, telling him, Jesus, some Greeks, some non-Jews are here to see you. And Jesus responds in kind of a funny way, Verse 23. He doesn't say, "Okay, I'll see them," or "Okay, I won't see them," which is what we expected he would say, but his response feels kind of disconnected to the to the to the uh to the information that he was given. He says, "Hey, hey Jesus, there's some Greeks here to see you," and he says, "The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified." That's a that's a funny answer. That doesn't really connect. What's that about? Well, the phrase, we stick with me here, it'll, it'll make sense. The phrase, the hour, throughout the book of John, refers always to a time when Jesus will be crucified and later resurrected. And what's important to note that up to now, every time Jesus talks about the hour, it's always future tense in the book of John. The hour will come, the hour will come. But now, for the first time in the book of John, in chapter 12, Jesus speaks of the hour as if it's a present tense. He doesn't say the hour will come, he says the hour has come but why? What's different now that didn't exist before? What's the factor now that has brought the hour that was in the future tense to be in the present tense? Because there were non-Greeks there. Because Jesus sees now that the world is ready to behold him. And why is that significant? Because it tells us who the gospel is for, who the cross is for, not just the Jews, not just a particular people group, but to all tongues, tribes, and nations, the ends of the world, world. And, and, and the world now who are to be recipients of the cross, is there. The hour, the time for the cross has come. And now, before the presence of the world, Jesus says something unbelievably countercultural. whatever culture you're from. He, he even begins a sentence with the phrase, truly, truly, in verse uh, 24, as if he knew that our hearts would need extra convincing to tell us that this is true. Let's look, look at verse 24, 26. What does Jesus say to the world? that heard him must have thought hold on you just said the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified what does death have to do with glory what does serving somebody else have to do with joy what does happiness have to do with losing the world doesn't glory and splendor and joy have to do with getting more of the world doesn't it have to do with gaining freedom to do what we want in this world That's what I thought joy was about. That's what the world has taught me. Happiness can be found. And Jesus is saying, it's a lie. You've been fooled. It's a lie. Don't believe it. We've been fooled our whole lives to thinking that true joy and fulfillment can be found by holding tightly to our lives. We've been fooled to thinking that joy and fulfillment can be found by gaining more worldly things. And Jesus speaks to us here, reveals to us that's not what you truly want. Here's what your heart wants. And you actually know this is what your heart wants. You know this to be true. I'll show, I'll show this later. What our hearts really want is not to gain the world. Here's what your heart wants. Your heart wants to be swooped up into a love relationship so intense that it makes the world seem like nothing. That's what you want. You want to be swooped up in a love relationship so intense that the world feels like nothing. And and let me show us how deep inside we know this to be true. Have you ever felt the pure bliss of being so deeply in love with someone to where you'd give up any money and time for them? See, we've been fooled to thinking joy could be found in gaining more time and money for ourselves. But think about your lives and your experiences. You're not happiest when you've gained more time and money you know when you're happiest? When you're in such deep in love with somebody, you'd have no problem giving up money and time for them. You remember those times? Now, it happens in different situations and different seasons of life that we're in. Go back to high school. It's 2 a.m. in the morning. You're supposed to be asleep. But instead, you've spent all your time in pulsa, talking to the person you thought was going to be the love of your life, and maybe it happened to be true for some of you, and you spent the past hour deciding who's going to hang up first. You hang up. No, you hang up. Somebody hang up. <laughs> That's when you're happiest. Not when you've accumulated more time and pull stuff for yourself, but when you've found someone whom you'd be glad to give up your time and pull stuff for. Is it not? See, we often think we'll be most joyful when we make it big and when we're successful in our careers, when we make a lot of money and own a lot of nice stuff. No, it's not. That's not what your heart truly wants. What do you want? You want to be souped up by love so intense where your career, your money, and your stuff, stuff, it's just stuff, becomes second place for you. Parents, do you remember that point in life where we're at at our most sanest And it's the day when your child was born. You remember that? And you see them looking deep into your eyes for the first time. And for a split second, your career, your money, your stuff, moves down a few levels in your heart value list. You remember that? And you you say to yourselves silently, I'll do what I need to do to provide for you. I'll spend what I need to spend to protect you. I'll give up whatever time I need to give up for you. I will never miss a soccer match or a chess match, whatever you end up being into. I'll always cheer you on because I'm in love with you. That's what your heart really wants, and you know it to be true. Not the world. What your heart really wants is to find a joy of being swooped up by love so intense you'd have no problem giving the world up for. Jesus here is merely revealing a truth that you already know to be true and pointing out the way we know our hearts actually operate. I know right now you think, Jesus said, I know right, time you, right now you think that you want the world. I know right now you think you want freedom from Rome. I know right now you think you want freedom from financial difficulty. I know right now you think that you need freedom from career mediocrity. That's not what you want. You know what it is you actually want? I'm using this as the term of being cheesy here. What your heart really wants is to find love abandoned. You want to find love abandoned you want to find somebody so in love with that you're willing to sacrifice the world for look at verse 26 hating the world when jesus talks about hating the world it's not about having a grudge against the world it's not about just hate for hatred's sake it's about being so in love with jesus that in comparison to that your love for the world doesn't even compete You despise and give it up in a split second because of him. The focus is to have a love abandoned for Jesus. Look at all the personal pronouns Jesus uses in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the purpose of your existence. He's saying, don't hate the world for hatred's sake. He's saying this is the missing piece you've been looking for your whole life. To be so lost in love with Jesus, he says, that your love of this world will grow slowly dim. In the state of love abandoned to me, that's when your heart will be truly joyful. So stop asking me for more of the world. Can't you see that's not what your heart truly wants? Ask me for more of me. But here's a problem with our hearts and I know this will be true with my heart, it's easily fooled. It has over and over again. How many times have we been so convinced that what we want is the world and forgot the joys of being in a state of love abandoned? Too many times. And we'll continue to forget over and over again. Let's go to our second point. The sluggish default of our hearts. See, the thing with our hearts is that it's fickle it so quickly and it so automatically gravitates to worldly ease and immediate comfort. So much so that it often fools itself to thinking that there is where he can find true joy and happiness. That is where he can truly find victory in the world. How many times have you heard this? Or how many times have you been in part of this conversation? You or somebody starts dating someone else and then after the honeymoon Honeymoon phase has ended. It gets really hard. And someone says this. If it's that hard to stay in love with him, maybe it's just not meant to be. If it's just that hard, if it's that hard to stay in love, maybe it's just not meant to be. Or have you guys have ever had to to try, um, uh, uh, if you guys really need to try this hard to be with each other, maybe that's just not what your heart wants. Now, if you're currently in a hard dating relationship, I'm not making a prophetic statement for you to stay with them. Okay? I don't know who you're dating or the situation. All I'm saying is that I'm trying to reveal a very broadly cultural truth assumption as we've seen in this very frequently heard advices. This is the cultural assumption that whatever feels easiest, whatever feels most natural, that's what your heart truly wants. It's a lie. It's a lie. Here's the thing. If you fall for that cultural assumption that whatever feels easiest and most natural must be what your heart truly wants, then you'll never be able to experience the joy that comes from being in a state of love abandoned. You won't. Because to be in a state of love abandoned means you have to be willing to say no to the world. And that's not easy. I know some parents here who love their children so much they'd be willing to work two jobs to provide for them. Now, if you ask them, hey, is it easy to work two jobs? Does it feel natural to sit in Jakarta traffic for four hours a day and go from one job to the next? Of course they'll say, no, it's not easy. (laughs) It's not fun. But the fact that they don't enjoy working two jobs and sitting in Jakarta traffic for four hours in a day for their children's well-being doesn't mean they don't love their child. It actually means the exact opposite. The fact that they're willing to stick it through is a testimony to how much they do love their children. You see? The world will tell you this. Oh, if it's that hard to stick it out, man, your heart must not really want it. Jesus says this. Oh, if it's that hard to stick it out, man, that must mean your heart really, really wants it. You see, the world says what you love can be found by looking at whatever comes easiest to you. Jesus says what you love can be found by looking at what it is you are willing to do the hard work of sacrifice for. Look at verse 27. Was it easy for Jesus to go to the cross? Did it feel easy and and quote-unquote natural to him? No, it was hard. But he stuck to it. Look at what he said in verse 27. After proclaiming that the hour of the cross has come, he says, now is my soul troubled. Jesus' soul was troubled. This isn't easy. But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Here's what's happening. Jesus saw the hour of the the cross approaching. He saw all that he had to give up in order to be obedient to the Father. And he said, my heart is troubled. In other words, this is going to be really, really, really hard. And soon again in Gethsemane, he says, Father, if possible, let this cup pass by me. There's nothing easy about the cross. It wasn't an easy thing for Jesus to go to the cross. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love the Father because the cross didn't feel easy for him. No. The fact that he stuck with it, even though it was really, really hard, is not a testimony to the lack of love he has for the Father. It's actually a testimony to how much he loved the Father. Guys, to be in a place where you're being swooped up by love so great, you'd be willing to give the world for, is the most joyful place to be in. But it's also the most difficult place to be in. Because on a daily basis, there will be so many lesser loves wanting to claw its way to the throne of your heart you have to say no. I'll be the first to testify to this. My wife and my daughter and my son-to-be are the loves of my life. And being lost in this love I have for them is the best and most joyful place for me to be. But there are lesser things every day knocking on the door of my heart that I have to say no to. For example, one of the loudest knocks Is something called ministry success. My wife and daughter are are the loves of my life, but I also love success, and the enemy knows that very well. And see, on a daily basis, I hear the knock. I hear the knocks. Just spend four more hours on your sermon. Make it better. Don't you want people to be impressed? Don't you want to have a big ministry? That's what's going to make you happy, having a big church. Sacrifice your time with your family. Add one more meeting past your limit this week. Give up one more day off. You have two in a week anyways. And if I listen to that, if I don't do the hard work and painful work of denying my idolatry and worship of success and commit my days off to my family, you know what's going to happen? the level of joy and experience that i feel by being in a state of love abandoned for my family will gradually thin out and i'm terrified i'm terrified that my heart will forget like it has so many times in the past forget the exhilarating joy i have when i'm in a state of love abandoned for them and replace it with something as trivial as being admired and looking impressive and successful those are lies don't listen to them. That's not what your heart wants. It'll actually rob you from joy. Jesus and God the Father in our passage today understands and knows how hard it is to remain in the state of love abandoned for him. Look at verse twenty-eight, twenty-nine. 29. They know how hard it is for us. After Jesus said in verse 27, Father, glorify your name. In verse 28, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. So people couldn't really make out exactly what they heard. Some thought it was thunder. Some were able to discern enough to where they know that someone spoke certain words. Either way, after Jesus revealed to them what the voice was about, they all knew that it was for them. Whatever it was, it was some kind of message confirmation from the heavens of Jesus' teaching and his mission to die on the cross. In other words, here's what that whole thing was about. In the dawn of the darkest night, right before Jesus would go to the cross, right before Jesus had to say no to the world, the Father intrudes into the scene and confirms Jesus' mission. I will glorify your work. Go on. I know your heart is troubled. Move forward in your state of love abandoned for me, even if you must give up the whole world. Keep going. But Jesus didn't really need that in that he was imperfect and sinful and he needed extra encouragement. No, he he said, this voice wasn't for me. It was for you. Because Jesus knew that the disciples too will soon face difficulty. Us, his followers, will too face difficulty in living in a joyful state of love abandoned for Jesus. It won't be easy for us either. They too... We, too, will feel troubled, just like Jesus did here before he was asked to give up his life for the love of his Father. We, too, will have lesser things contend for the throne of our hearts. They'll knock, and it's going to be so tempting to say, well, whatever feels easiest, that's what my heart wants. I'll go with that. Jesus is saying here, when you hear those troubling knocks, just like I'm hearing now, my heart's troubled, when you're faced with a difficult choice of choosing to remain in a state of love abandoned for God or to let the world in, remember the, the difficult crossroads I'm in today. Remember how I chose the cross. Remember how this is a decision affirmed by the heavens itself through this voice. You'll need to remember this moment. You will. This voice has come for your sake to encourage you to remain in a state of love abandoned because believe me, the world will come knocking and they'll come knocking hard. Remember how I chose to be lifted up, verse 32. This is to show what kind of death he was going to die, verse 33 says. In other words, remember how I chose to be nailed and to be lifted up on a cross and said no to the world to remain in a state of love abandoned with the Father for his glory, for my joy. Remember, follow me, trust me, and do the difficult work of saying no to the world. But the crowd still didn't get it. Just like we so often don't get it. Verse 34 said, they said, what do you mean the Son of Man must be lifted up? What do you mean he must leave and and die and all this stuff? They couldn't take it all in. They couldn't grasp it. (laughs) Do we not also have a hard time grasping this? Does not the world still have a hold on us? to?" to where we every day say yes to the world and choose to abandon this love relationship we have with the Father. So in verse 35 to 36, Jesus responds to the crowd's confusion. But really, if you read his response, it's, it's nothing new. It, it's just, it just reminds them, walk, just walk in the light. Don't walk in the darkness, walk in the light. He didn't say anything new. Why? Because Jesus realized what they needed, what their hearts needed to be convinced is not to hear more words what their hearts needed to be convinced is to see a beauty worth falling in love with, that they would abandon the world. To see something so beautiful, it'll align their hearts back to Him. You see, there's, this is one other thing about our hearts, is that we can't command our hearts to enter into a state of love abandoned. We can't say, come on heart, love them. It doesn't work that way. It works like this. We must first be convinced That the thing we're about to be abandoned for is truly beautiful to us and is worth giving up the world for, or else our hearts won't fall for it. This is why Jesus knew they didn't need more information. They needed um, uh, to see something. Let's go to our last point. A beauty that realigns our hearts. Look, what your heart needs is to see how beautiful Jesus is. That's the only way you're going to fall into love abandoned. Only when we see this will we fall into it. Well, where in our text do we see Jesus' beauty? I see him saying words. I see him interacting with people. I don't see his beauty. Go to verse 31. Look at the beginning of verse 31. This is a funny verse. As the hour of the cross was approaching, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Why? Because the world, we all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all said yes to lesser things. We've all replaced the one true God um, with created things and chosen the world. We deserve judgment. But think about how weird this is. If the one who deserves judgment is the world, i.e., you and I and everyone in the world, then why was Jesus the one crucified? If the world was the one who deserves judgment, doesn't that mean that the world should have been crucified? Doesn't that mean that the world should have been punished? Not Jesus. How do we make sense of this confusion? Well, the only way to make sense of it is that this must somehow mean that on the cross, somehow, the judgment rightfully meant for the world was put on Jesus. On the cross, the judgment meant for us, Jesus took upon himself. And this is the only way, verse 24, makes sense. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Who is this grain of wheat? Jesus is. Who is the fruit that comes uh, uh, to life as a result of this death? Those who would trust in it, in him. You and I who've put our faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, In other words, you're saying this, unless he knew, unless I died, you Cannot not be saved. Unless I died, I can't be with you. In other words, what happened on the cross, he denied the world so that he could have us. He denied the world so that he could pay for the judgment that was supposed to be ours. In other words, Jesus had love abandoned for you. You see? To where he hated his life on earth. On the cross, he said no to comfort. He said no to popularity. He said no to riches. He said no to more personal time. For you. And let's not miss this. The world came knocking on the door of his heart. Oh, yes, it did. Satan tempted him to not go there in Matthew chapter 4. Peter didn't want him to go there in Matthew chapter 16. You shall not die, Lord. His own soul was troubled here in verse 27. Again in Gethsemane. He would be sweating as if there were drops of blood. The world came knocking. And what would have happened if he gave in? What would have happened if he said, you know what? My heart wants what's easiest. What would have happened if he chose comfort, if he chose what's easy? But instead, he chose you. Because he found you to be somebody worth losing the world over. And now, because he's paid the full price of our judgment on the cross, there is no longer anything that can stop him from being with you. Remember the Greeks in verse 20 we talked about earlier, who weren't allowed to get close to the inner temple and worship, but they're kind of cast out to the outer temples? It's not really about race. It's about personal uh, righteousness. They thought that non-Jews were less righteous and somehow can't get as close to God. And isn't that what man-made religion teaches us? You must be at a certain level of righteousness before you can have this love relationship with God. When Jesus died on the cross, remember what happened in Matthew chapter 27? The curtain that blocked the inner uh, most holy part of the temple was torn in two. Saying, you can enter now. All of you. Don't listen to human-made religions who says you must reach a certain standard before being in love abandoned for me. Sinners, tax collectors, non-Jews, whatever the world categorizes as making you less than, God says, I don't need to look at that because my son has abandoned the world for you and has paid for you in full. That's what I look at. And you can have it now in him. Have what? A love abandoned offered by your God for you on the cross. So from here on out, live your lives as it was originally meant to be lived. How your heart instinctively knows it's what it wants. You know it's what you want. To be in a joyful state of love abandoned for your God. If it gets hard when you're on a crossroads, when it's difficult to choose between Him because the knocks of this world get so loud, remember Him who shut the door to the world and opened it for you. And do the same so that your joy of love abandoned for him will increasingly grow. The fact that you do the hard work of sacrifice for him doesn't mean that you don't want it. Actually shows you that if you stick it through, how much your heart actually does want it so that by your life, every tongue, tribe, and nation will see the glory of God and join in this love. Will you receive this gospel? Are you tired of experiencing the secondhand joys that the world offers? Do you want to be lost in a love so intense you'd be willing to give up the world for? He's offering it to you on the cross. Will you walk in this light? Will you fall into this joyful state of love abandoned that'll make you consider the world and even your own life as nothing? That's where you find joy. Seeing, receiving, and continually walking with your Redeemer, the one who has turned down the world Let's pray. Father, take the world. My heart wants it. When I daydream, I daydream of success. When I daydream, I daydream of applauses and admiration and financial stability and rest and being freed from singleness and Lord, these things aren't bad. They're not evil in themselves. But let it never be the things that take over the throne of our heart. That's not where we find joy. Remind us of what our heart wants, to be so in love with you that our pulsa, our time, our money, our career, our riches, our stuff, mean nothing. Bring us there as we sing of your cross and as we're reminded of your gospel through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.